Okay, hello everyone and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Uh, I am your host, forgot who I was for a second, that's okay. Uh, we'll call that the Bo is Afraid Effect. Anyway, my name's Adam A. Donaldson and joining me today is... Tim Phillips. And I can't really blame it all on Bo is Afraid. Tim, let me ask you, have you heard of this movie called The Devil's Conspiracy? No, although it sounds like that title sounds like something, but what what is it? What if I told you it was The Da Vinci Code meets Rosemary's Baby? Would that make you want to go watch it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> definitely. Definitely Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite horror movies I've ever seen. So, yeah, I'd be interested. What if I told you its primary stylistic influence was Underworld? I'd be indifferent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just I I watch I I I watched it on a lark last weekend, and I was just like, I have to talk about this. We're never going to review it, but I just have to say it out loud. There is a movie called The Devil's Conspiracy. It is essentially The Da Vinci Code meets Rosemary's Baby, and it is rancid, but I love it. That's great. Where where is it streaming? Did you say you can rent it on Hoopla? For, okay. If you have if you have your Guelph Library card, you can go on the Hoopla digital streaming service and rent it for free right now. Wow, which go is ahead. about which is about all I would ever pay for it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> boy, oh boy, you've never killed two hours like this. Anyway, end credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at three p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies. Which this week will be a little. Uh, surrealist black tragic comedy horror. I got that description from Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. It's called Bo is Afraid, and you can now see it in a theater near you. For the first half of the show, though, I think we can uh, easily explain Bo is Afraid. I think we could also explain The Devil's Conspiracy, for that matter, as big swings. Um, although, <laughs> The Devil's Conspiracy <laughs> is from no one you've ever heard of. Uh, yeah. It stars no one you've ever heard of. Actually, that's not true. It stars... Uh, what's that guy? But who did he play? Oh, yeah. He played Sam Tully's father on... What's that show? Game of Thrones. Um, and that's the biggest star in that movie. So it's not like you wouldn't recognize anyone, but you'll spend like three quarters of an hour trying to remember where you recognize that person from. Um, that's neither here nor there. We're going to talk about big swings. And we're... we're uh, we're how are we defining big swings? Uh, big swings are like directors who get take on a big project. Um, it's a project that is maybe big. It is a project that is maybe not so simple. It is a project that everyone might think is doomed to fail. Maybe sometimes it does fail, and maybe sometimes it's a success mm -hmm. because movies are sometimes like that. And I mean. We love the big swings. We love the big swings, right, Tim? Yeah, go for it. Go big or go home. That's right. So <laughs> <laughs> this may come up later as we're talking about Bo's Afraid, whether or not the big swing works or whether it not. But I think in this era of like safe, you know, um, safe filmmaking, exploiting titles that have been successful in the past, the idea that someone would come in and take a big swing and take gambles, especially with like a lot of studio money, is mm -hmm. is is very rare indeed. So, uh, keeping all that in mind, uh, we're going to get into our big swings, our top three big swings 
And uh, Tim, why don't we start off with, uh, well, I, I was thinking about three strikes, big swings, three strikes. Yeah. So what's your number one? <laughs> yeah, my number one big swing, I'm going going back quite a ways to 1960. I selected Peeping Tom by Michael Powell. Because um, it's a swing as far as content goes. And as far as a director who was established at the time uh, as a British director, he had a partnership with Emmerich Pressburger and they had created a number of films, the red shoes, which is considered a classic, uh, they're aspiring uh, ballerina. And not to, not to be confused with the red shoe diaries. No, which was a big <laughs> swing as well in the nineties. It sure was. Yeah. Ask David uh, Duchovny. David Duchovny. And then you'll, was, then you'll see a big swing when you ask David Duchovny about the Red Shoe Diaries. Yeah, yeah, he was following his passion, so is what <laughs> David Duchovny was doing back then. But um, I, I just like Peeping Tom because it, content-wise, it, it, it was really brazen choice um, by Michael Powell. So he had directed films with Pressburger in the 40s and 50s, and that partnership was kind of coming to a conclusion Apparently it was amicable. It wasn't like they had a rift or anything. They just decided wanted to go in their different directions. So Michael Powell had this script by Leo Marx that was based on a um, a serial killer who uh, who uses a portable film camera. Mm-hmm. He's he's a focus puller with a studio in the UK, and he uses it to 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 kill people and, and see their expressions when they, they die. And it's sort of, it was made the same year as psycho. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, Alfred Hitchcock was doing sort of a big swing on like a low budget, but a big swing with uh, a film where he's killing off his lead character halfway through um, has the shower sequence and he ends up getting praised and his career ends up taking off from it. Whereas we're talking swing, it was kind of a swing and miss for Michael Powell at the time because he was just roasted in the press for this sort of mean-spirited, vicious film. Uh, and uh, But he, he took the chance with it because he liked the content. And it, it spoke about voyeurism and how we watch films. Mm-hmm. And it was something which is interesting because now when you watch it, you can totally see that that's the subject matter. It's... Um, how we're all complicit in the violence we see on screen. Uh, and it also was a real forerunner for slasher films. So you can see from the killer's point of view, which it's very reminiscent of what you end up seeing in Halloween, like 18 years later. Hmm. Um, and also Alfred Hitchcock's own frenzy. You can see a lot with sort of like the British serial killer. It, it's very, very similar to that. And it inspired those films. But at the time, people just, we're reviewing movies almost at like face value and just saying this disturbed me. I didn't like it. It was vicious. Um, I think it was the first, it was very small bit of nudity in it, but it was the Mm -hmm. first like full frontal nudity in British film history or something for like five seconds. And then (laughs) there was all this uh, violence. So the, the critics of the time, especially the British critics of the time just roasted this film. So, one of the critics even said that um, they should put it in the sewer. <laughs> they should just dump the film canister in, in the sewer and be done with it. And mm-hmm. uh, 
and the Telegraph said it killed Michael Powell's career. Um, somebody uh, likened Powell to the Marquis de Sade. Um, and it was just, it was called a beastly film by another critic. So it was definitely like a swing and miss at the time. However, it was reappraised in, in the 70s and the 80s when Martin Scorsese uh, considered it one of his favorite films and he considered Michael Powell one of his favorite directors. He liked The Red Shoes and he liked Peeping Tom. Mm -hmm. So he purchased a print of Peeping Tom and showed it at the New York Film Festival and then it started becoming reappraised. And Michael Powell... Uh, he was always curmudgeonly from what I'm, I'm reading here. So a lot, a lot of people say, Oh, that killed his career. I think he was sort of biting the hand that feeds him already. Mm -hmm. um, Cause when you watch the film there, there's some references to the film studio and a lot of this people at the studio are made to look somewhat idiotic and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So he was already biting the hand that feeds him. Um, so in a true sort of curmudgeonly sense, he was asked, I think, in the 80s, so what do you think about this film being reassessed? And people are saying it's a great film. It's one of the best horror movies of all time. It it inspired so many films. Mm -hmm. And he just said, basically, yeah, thanks for telling me now, 30 years later. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> you crapped on me for 30 years. And now all of a sudden, because this hotshot director Scorsese likes it, you know, now it's been reassessed. Thank you. So he's definitely not a glass half full type of guy from what I've read about him, but he well, definitely that's, that's in the culture yeah. of like British, I mean, British theater and British film to an extent is like, you know, every, every job is your last job. So you kind of have to <laughs> treat it as such. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he, uh, and, and so like, Kudos to him, though, because there was so much. He could have stayed with Emmerich Pressburger. They had a good thing going. Mm. He could have continued to make films. Like, his films stylistically um, stylistically pushed the envelope, but they weren't, like, like so disturbing as this. But he decides, I'm going to do this. Mm. I like this script. Mm. It says a lot about film and our, uh, how we're voyeurs to it, how we show horrific things on the screen and victims and we watch passively while what happens um and and so kudos to him for actually getting it made mm -hmm. and but obviously it kind of ruined his career for a few decades there um and the, the lead performance um is by carl baum mm -hmm. who uh is he actually is the uh, son of the conductor, Karl Baum, from, uh, I think, Austria. Mm -hmm. um, and he does a really good job. And he said he he treated the character sympathetically, even though he's like, he's the serial killer. He treated him sympathetically at the time, which in 1960 is probably like, you know, black or white. Is it a good person or is it a bad person? And it reminded me of, Peter Lorre's performance, because he has a similar accent, Peter Lorre in the movie M from the 30s, mm -hmm. where he plays a child murderer, and still as as vile as that is, still like finds some sort of empathy for the character, and so Carl Baum uh, finds that empathy, and it's a credit that it, it did get released, um, 
and it had been rediscovered by Scorsese and and young filmmakers of the 70s and critics and the fact that it's still out there and and it's now inspired it's inspired so many generations like i said you can see in halloween you can see in hitchcock's own frenzy and then that just comes down the line to the slasher flicks that have come since then mm-hmm. um yeah it was great so in a way he hit a home run but it was sort of after the fact he uh he struck out at the time but you know, it just shows that these films, like I'm sure you'll have some on your list, the longer they they uh, they're out there, you know, people find them. And we're talking about Bo's Afraid later, which is very strange, and you know, th- these can become cult classics if they're around long enough and you get enough people who who enjoy them. So, kudos to him for you know taking a chance, taking a risk in 1960 England, which probably was not the most pleasant thing to do at the time. Uh, Yeah, your pick makes me embarrassed for my picks, which I already, like, I'm embarrassed for because I already said it's like, well, you know, our our, our, our safe sort of IP fuel <laughs> <laughs> uh, movie industry today. But, you know, it, 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 it's a, a reminder to me, too, though, that, you know, when it comes to big swings and they are successful, you know, what looks like an obvious slam dunk is you know, did not look like an obvious slam dunk from the other side. And so one of the things I was thinking about was Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which, you know, they just, they have, they have a Lord of the Rings show on Prime uh, that they're making the second season of. Now they're going into production on a new Lord of the Rings movie. There were the Hobbit movies, but just, you know, going back to the turn of the century and Peter Jackson, this nobody from New Zealand who made like a movie about killer puppets and it made a like the goriest zombie movie you've ever seen and then he made this movie about two female serial killers in new zealand which uh got a lot of critical praise and had two great performances from young actors who would go on to do great things kate winslet and melanie linsky um but you know this is somebody who wasn't you know if he was going to make the trilogy uh lord of the rings uh a popular book for decades and turn it into this big three movie, making three movies at once studio opus that almost could have literally killed a studio and then blown would would have blown a big financial hole in another studio. Because imagine a world where fellowship of the ring comes out and it bombs. Mm-hmm. What happens then? <laughs> um you know do you release two towers and return to the gang like what what do you do yeah. it's crazy to think about yeah. what would happen if that thing tanked but it worked you know they bet it all on peter jackson he was making three movies at a time he was running five crews at a time um he was working with a mix of digital effects and practical effects he was building his own effects studio um, to 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 pull it all off, and uh, you know it, it is a remarkable success story. And it's like, yeah, now it you know we're cranking out Lord of the Rings stuff like nobody's business. But you know, at the time, it was like, who's going to see these things? Mm-hmm. You know, is it going to be too dense? Is like the 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 total movie audience going to come and watch this like highly literate? Um, but you know meandering fantasy movie like could it you know it there's that joke in clerks too where 
you know, Randall says, like, even the trees walk in that movie. Um, it's, you know, it's nine hours of walking. But there is a kernel of truth in that. It is, you know, it didn't have that whiz bang of like a Star Wars, even something like Phantom Menace at the time. Um, but, you know, it, it just, it could have gone also horribly wrong. They bet $300 million, which was a lot of money at the time, mm-hmm. on three movies based on a 50-year-old book directed by the guy who made Meet the Feebles. And <laughs> yeah. that is remarkable. And the fact that it comes out as like this billion-dollar success story, multiple Oscars, um, you know, and also the turn it takes by, you know, it would have been super, super weird at one point for a fantasy movie to win Best or best Picture. And by the time you get to the Return of the mm-hmm. King, it was inevitable. It was like, we have to acknowledge these at the ultra-serious self-important level of the oscars so it was by no means a done deal when peter jackson started making those things and it seems super obvious now yeah but at the time no there was every chance it was going to fail so lord of the rings (laughs) for sure yeah huge investment like definitely a lot of interest in in the adaptation of those books but like you Mm -hmm. said peter jackson Jackson meet the feebles and like what had he done he'd done some really cultish kind of stuff in the past right so is it going to play to large audiences and it all worked out his movie his last movie before Lord of the Rings was the Frighteners I like the Frighteners I like the Frighteners at the time but it bombed and you know Michael J Fox is a Ghostbuster Um, (laughs) you know it worked for me but (laughs) There, there was nothing in that movie that said this guy's going to win like 12 billion Oscars and make, uh, you know, a billion dollars making Lord of the Rings. So it's it's just fascinating how this works out. Um, yeah. So let's get to your number two then. Yeah, my number two is Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. by Francis Ford Coppola. And to see really what a big swing it was, I would, I would recommend the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, which came, mm-hmm. which was released in 1991, but has all the footage um, that his wife had taken and, and recordings of Francis Ford Coppola as sort of his mental states deteriorating, uh, making this film that was supposed to be, they finally selected Philippines to shoot the film in, and it was supposed to be four months and went for over a year all kinds of issues with the film. But if we backtrack to the development of it, um, so it was released in 1979, uh, but the original script was written by John Milius in 1969 uh, about Vietnam, which was on everyone's mind back then. Mm-hmm. And it was an mm-hmm. adaptation of Heart of Darkness, loose adaptation, Joseph Conrad mm-hmm. book from 1899. Um changed the setting from the Congo to the Vietnam War. And it's a river journey through South Vietnam to Cambodia, where Captain Willard is on a secret mission to assassinate Colonel Kurtz. And the script was ready in 69. And George Lucas was pegged to direct it um, in 1971. So before he had even done American Graffiti, uh, they... Um, Francis Ford Coppola was involved because he was like a mentor to George Lucas and they're really close friends mm-hmm. and George Lucas was going to take this on after he did uh, THX uh, after he did that 
mm-hmm. once I get that done, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll take on this project. And it was just seen as like, okay, this is our statement. This is back when filmmakers, and now we're going to seeing it now, like filmmakers trying to make a lot of statements. Now we're seeing movies like Bo was afraid that we're going to review and Babylon where they're tr- making their, trying to make grandiose statements in three hours. But back then it was really something where it was seen as this really culturally important thing to do would be to make an epic film that represents the Vietnam war and the futility of war. <laughs> and so there was a lot of, thought and attention put into this and but then george lucas um started getting his ideas for star wars and and it's interesting at the time that he chose star wars over apocalypse now Mm -hmm. um so he did a big swing for star wars you could go in that direction too he made a big swing for star wars um because like he had written this treatment and like francis ford coppola and everybody's like what the heck's a Wookiee? Like, where are you talking about? If <laughs> you lost your mind, yeah. we've got this, you know, culturally, culturally important film we're going to make, you know, we're going to change the world with this film. So by default, Francis Ford Coppola didn't really seem to want to direct it at the start. He ends up taking over the project and he swings big on the project in that he's huge budgets, um has to get involved the filipino government um they have to get these helicopters they have to get like all this infrastructure for this this film which they don't know like will this do anything it's a political film you know this isn't they aren't making you know rocky 2 or something (laughs) (laughs) this is like is there any guarantee of this doing anything and all the resources that were pumped into it, but they, they, they go ahead with it and just, just get ingrained in, in making it. So despite all these obstacles, like Harvey Keitel originally was cast as Willard. Mm-hmm. And after um, a few shooting days, um, Coppola is like, no, he's not right for the part. No, he's mm-hmm. a great actor. He was in mean streets. I saw him in that. He was great, but he's not right for the part. We're going to have to reshoot this. Um, Marlon Brando comes in overweight. Uh, he doesn't want to, he only wants to shoot minimum number of days. He shows mm-hmm. up like three months after they've started shooting to shoot his parts. <laughs> he tries improvising a bunch of it. it it's just like, like all these obstacles, yet they they just kept working on it. Mm-hmm. And even at the time it was released, like it was released to the Cannes Film Festival in 1979 in an unfinished version. Mm-hmm. And it was controversial because it it shared the palm door with um, the tin drum, mm-hmm. and it was controversial because it's unfinished. And they felt like this is just like because Francis Ford Coppola directed Godfather, so they give him this award here. Mm-hmm. And it kind of got mixed reviews when it came out at the time. A lot of people were like, "The ending, you know, is kind of weird. Like, what's the is this is even mean anything? Like, it's definitely <laughs> there's some great surreal elements, but does this amount to anything?" And obviously, since that time, a lot of people consider it like one of the best films of all time, a great war film that really shows, yeah, the the insanity of war um, has really strange, surreal elements that you can come back to time and again to watch for multiple viewings. 
but at the time, yeah, it was a lot of money being pumped into it. Mm -hmm. You had Zotrope Studios footing the bill for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, Francis Ford Coppola's, you know, his uh, studio. I believe this is before he was making millions and millions on his winery and stuff, which helped him yeah. Yeah. fund Godfather 3. So it was a huge risk to do this, and it was a total passion project. And so excellent that they they finally could finish this film despite all these problems. And one I didn't even mention if you watch the documentary, Mark Martin Sheen had a heart attack during the filming of the of the <laughs> yeah. film. Yeah. Like this guy who you wouldn't looks like he's a fit guy, everything in the in the heat of the jungle has a heart attack. They have to stop shooting for uh, I don't even know how long, a couple months or something. Or and 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 they still got it done. So mm -hmm. and it's considered one of the classic films one of the best films of all time so that's a huge swing because like you said like you were saying with the lord of the rings it's a completely different movie but still like a big big swing in the fact that they had no guarantee this was going to do anything mm -hmm. at all and it's a political movie passion project and they were able to to get it done so mm -hmm. i think that's one that in retrospect hit a home run but even at the time it was released people were like i don't know this kind of a, a you know it's kind of kind of a waste of time some people were saying and then the fact it a lot of a lot of the contemporary news articles at the time that upset francis for coppola were saying apocalypse when because mm -hmm. it was supposed to be released in 77 and it wasn't released till 79 so mm -hmm. It really showed the grit and determination to get something done and a big swing by Francis Ford Coppola, which, you know, he'd taken a lot of big swings in his career and some of them haven't paid off, but so many have. And, uh, and there's another big you know, swing coming. Megalopolis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see how, see how that works out. But yeah, I, I think it, um, definitely, definitely a big swing uh from an artist artistic standpoint and then it ended up like i don't even know what the box office ended up being for it but i'm sure mm -hmm. with rentals and stuff over the years it's definitely made a profit a big profit so mm -hmm. yeah well, it's still in the wine business yeah um all right my my second pick is very similar but not quite uh it's 2008's iron man um, which is also about uh, someone being tragically affected by war, and it also affect you know it also involves uh, somebody somebody being injured in the heart, although that's in the movie and not in real life. But um, again, things seem obvious in retrospect that don't seem terribly obvious. Marvel. This was before Marvel was owned by Disney. I think Marvel uh, Disney bought Marvel in two thousand and eleven. So this is a couple of years before that. Marvel goes out and says, um. We're going to make movies about our characters um, and we need a business loan. And they get, I think, like $100 million in startup money to start Marvel Studios. And at this point, you know, they're coming out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the 90s. And they had pretty much sold the movie rights to as many characters as humanly possible to stave off bankruptcy. So they didn't have their big guys. They didn't have Spider-Man. They didn't have the X-Men. And if you're going to make start with a Marvel movie, those are the two ones you're going to start with. So what did they have? They had Iron Man and the Avengers. And they decided to go with Iron Man. 
Now, Iron Man had been in the works for a long time. Tom Cruise was famously attached to it in much of the 90s and some of the 2000s. But they go with Robert Downey Jr. And Robert Downey Jr. at this point, nobody wants to work with him. Nobody wants to insure him. He's been in rehab four times. He's been in jail twice. Um, There's no guarantee that... He won't go back to jail or rehab. It, I mean, fortunately, this it did it did all stick at this time. Um, and he'd been busy for a couple of years. He was in like the singing detective, he was in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but like those were like the only things he could get. Um and then Marvel comes along and says, Hey, you want to be Iron Man? And you know, he jumps on it. Now, Iron Man, again, not one of the most famous Marvel characters. Robert Downey Jr., not the most bankable leading man. The supporting cast. You have Terrence Howard, who's coming off Oscar noms for Hustle and Flow. You have Gwyneth Paltrow. You have Jeff Bridges. You're putting together a popcorn summer superhero action movie. This isn't the cast you get. (laughs) If you're putting together a costume period Oscar nominee, this is the cast you get. But not (laughs) not for Iron Man. And then directing it is Jon Favreau, whose kind of one movie success as a director is Elf. This kind of jolly, happy, Will Ferrell Christmas comedy. He had done like one kind of big budget action-y kind of thing, Zathura, which is like Jumanji in space. Comes from the same author, so you can say Jumanji in space, because that's essentially what it is. But And he wrote and starred in Swingers, right? So that's He did, but I mean again, and stuff. again yeah. that's not exactly a precursor for Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but you know what? It works. It works. Robert Downey Jr. becomes like the anchor for this expansive multi-movie universe for the next 12 years. In fact, you know, his ghost kind of still hangs over it to a certain respect. Um, not not that he's dead, of course. His character is dead, but he's still alive. Spoiler alert for Avengers Endgame. <laughs> but um, it's it's just crazy. It, it, it's crazy the, the swings they took. And it, again, this could have all sank a nascent studio. And what does Marvel get acquired by Disney if they don't take this bet, if they don't start their own studio, maybe start making their own movies, and if Iron Man doesn't, especially Iron Man right out of the gate, doesn't hit. And then that comes, uh, follows up with Captain America and Thor and the Avengers, which is kind of right on the cusp of the Disney buyout. Um, mm-hmm. It's an incredible um an incredible run an incredible start i know there's a book coming out i think later this year about the mcu story and how it got started so that'll be an incredibly interesting to read but just you know to to sort of prime the pump i I mean iron man looks like it can't like it came together so simply this little you know iron man movie but no it's it was a big bet and everybody had eyes on this morning like is this going to work can you put an oscar caliber cast an untested leading man, an untested director, a character, a C-list character most movie audiences don't know, and use it to launch an expansive superhero multi-film crossover franchise. You can. It seems easy now. But I mean, again, you know, look at what's happening with the DC movies and, and you know, other kind of expanded universe. It's actually not that easy. Marvel made it look easy. Um, but, uh, you know, Iron Man, it's still a big swing, no matter which way you slice it. For sure. Yeah. It almost made my list. Um, and I remember I was having a dinner with someone who's big comic 
book aficionado and so this is before i guess the marvel universe right because um mm-hmm. iron man started that off and it's like a maybe a year or six months before they started filming because it was in the news that robert downey jr was going to play iron man mm-hmm. and i remember both of us were really psyched about it um because you know because robert downey jr has that charisma mm-hmm. brings humor to it mm-hmm. and so my friend who's really into comics and myself who as a kid was but wasn't at that point we were just totally we totally like the acting choice or the casting choice because it's like, okay, you're going to, it's not just going to be, you know, a nerd fest, right? <laughs> it's going to be like, <laughs> you're going to have humor, humanity. And that's what it was. And it, it's definitely one of my favorite movies of the Marvel universe still to this day is that first one, because it, it just, it fits together so well. He's got that, mm-hmm. you know, suave leading man presence and humor and fallibility that I think works works well with general audiences. And even though it seems like an odd sort of niche choice picking him, mm-hmm. that's what made it, I think that's what brought a lot of humanity to it. It wasn't some cookie cutter leading man, mm-hmm. you know? So we were both happy, even though it was kind of an odd choice and then it, it worked out r- really well. And um, mm-hmm. so I think, yeah, that one almost made my list actually for this too, just based on that casting choice. All right. Well, we have one more left on your list. So, um, what, uh, what, what is it? Give it to us. <laughs> Give it to us. Okay. Um, this is this one. I'm thinking from sort of a negative perspective, although it did big box office. Mm. It was a big swing. Mm-hmm. A lot of expectations, but Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, mm-hmm. directed by George Lucas, um, which came out in 1999, mm-hmm. and so. 16 years between that and return of the Jedi. And I'm by no means an expert in the star Wars universe at this point in my life. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if I'll be able to, I don't think I'm going to delve into that, but I'll just tell you, I did see it when it came out. I was really hyped about it. Really loved star Wars was a big star Wars fan going into it. And my brother and I, like so many people, there's so much hype. I want to see it with my brother and I don't usually See, I haven't seen many movies just with my brother before, but we were so excited about it. We went to see it. And I just remember leaving with the sort of sense of disappointment um, by the fact that it's just like it was just made as a precursor for the second film, basically. And it didn't to me at the time. And I, I don't know if I've watched it since it didn't work well for me as like a complete film, whereas the mm. original star wars which of course was episode four so he had george lucas had in his mind this whole universe these other episodes but it worked well as a film on its own so if even if it didn't become the smash success it would have become a cult hit you know even if people didn't see it at the time because it works well as a film on its own and episode one i felt like it was definitely swing for the fences Mm mm-hmm George Lucas had all these ideas and I've read about like all, all these ideas. And it was one of these deals where, where he had creative free reign. Mm -hmm. He wanted to go big when it came, came to special effects, costumes, you know, one thing that's picked on a lot in the movie and I won't go into great depth, but it's the Jar Jar Binks character, Mm -hmm. which George Lucas apparently like created for comedic effect. 
and <laughs> I didn't mind it for a little bit, but then it just kept going on and on. Right. It was such a big seemed like such a big character in that film. And the film became, I think sort of a, to me, a bit of a muddled mess in that you had so many different things going on mm-hmm. and it all was, all was to like foreshadow the next episode and then the next episode, which in a way I think became sort of a negative precedent for a lot of films in these cinematic universes or, or television series where it's like, okay, we're going to have this episode and it's all to build a cliffhanger to the next episode. Right. You know, and to go see that as an event movie at the time, and it, but it says right in it, I guess you should know there's no false episode one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this is just sort of this episode that on its own doesn't, doesn't really amount to like something you could just watch on its own. You have to watch it to lead up to something else. I found kind of disappointing. My brother and I were kind of glass half full because we were like so mm-hmm. psyched to see it that after it's over, we we're like, oh, that's pretty good. The next one's going to be good. Mm-hmm. But then it was like, you know, you felt like, okay, this just too much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you read, you read that, like if I'm being reminded of it going on the Wikipedia page, just so much, <laughs> so much that George Lucas was trying to do. And then it was kind of funny, I guess, Ron Howard, if you read on Wikipedia, said in November, 2015, that Ron Howard, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg were all asked at a certain point to direct episode one. And they, they turned it down. They said, they just found it too daunting, you know, mm-hmm. which is a nice way of saying, you know, George Lucas probably wants to throw everything <laughs> out mm-hmm. here. You know, where, where is the core of this? Where is the core of this film? I could probably revisit it. I'm sure there's a lot of episode one stands out there and stuff mm. who, who like it. But for me, just, going back to the, that experience, I just felt like this is just somebody who's has almost too much power. Mm. They too much hype. And it doesn't, it doesn't create that great an experience. Now the expectations were so heightened at the time. It's hard to meet those expectations, yeah. but a lot of people say, Oh, the expectations are too high. How do you meet those? But sometimes people do meet those expectations and then it's glorious when that happens. Right. And in this case, it just fell flat. Um, and I, for me, like from an artistic point, it was a swing and a miss, but then it made billions of dollars. It was (laughs) one of the top films at the box office of all time. So it ends up from a business standpoint, it works out. Um, and it, it worked out as a precursor to the next episodes, which I like better. However, yeah, on its own, I just felt it was a swing and a miss. And I know when we came up with this topic, we said whether they succeed or fail, um, swing and a home run, swing and a miss. For me, just from an artistic standpoint, that was a swing and a miss. And mm-hmm. I would have would have liked more, more. And I think, you know, I had mentioned the original Star Wars episode four that George Lucas made instead of Apocalypse Now. So that was, he bet on himself, <laughs> swinging a home run. In this case, I think it comes down to that. Yeah, too much too much power, not enough people hmm. saying no. And I think it became a bit of a jumbled mess. And also just sort of this precursor, which is great, but 
as a film on its own, you go to see in a theater, you want to see a conclusion. You want to see something that's going to blow you away. And I, I felt this promise that and it didn't deliver at the mm. time. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, it, you're, you're right though, about it. It does. Ha- I mean, cause there's an entire generation of kids who that was the star Wars they saw on the big screen. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like modern, appreciation and and it's going to be the same with the sequels too um there's going to be like in, in 10 years like for all the young people who were you know kids when those movies came out those are going to be their star wars movies too and i, and I don't think that can be underestimated or underappreciated um all right mine my last one pick is kind of along similar lines uh it came out in 97 it's called titanic um yeah. <laughs> if uh, I have Entertainment Weekly copies of Entertainment Weekly from like the summer of 1997, so like months before Titanic came out. And boy, were the expectations brutal! People wanted that ship to die and that movie to die, and they wanted to watch it happen. Um, there were zero expectations that we were waiting for one of the biggest movies of all time. And I mean, it's easy to understand why. It's about the Titanic, which is a ship that had sunk like 80 years before. Um, it, it's a big sort of old-fashioned romantic adventure. Um, and James Cameron was not a filmmaker known for his romantic whimsy. Although, you know, there are romantic elements in his films, certainly like Terminator uh, and The Abyss. And um, it's a big part of True Lies, but it, he is not widely known and accepted as a romantic <laughs> um especially with four wives um well, maybe that is an indication of how romantic he is he's still willing to give it a try after four or five times but um yeah he he, he it also has two at the time two unknown stars leonardo DiCaprio, kate winslet um so you know it had 200 million dollars and again that sounds like peanuts in modern, like when you're spending $300 million to make Citadel on prime, but it, it, it's at the time this, you know, James Cameron didn't take a salary to make Titanic because it cost so much money. Fortunately, he got a sweet backend deal, which, you know, funded many submarine adventures for him. But, um, this was a gamble in, in, in such a ridiculous way. Can you make a big old fashioned romantic adventure? three hours long um, in 1997 and have audiences come back and not just come out, come, come, come to the theater, see it, but come back again and again and again and again and again, 16 weeks at number one. Um, you know, it's remarkable to me that we still kind of underestimate Jim Cameron, um, even, you know, Avatar as a, as a product is kind of underwhelming. I've yet to see Avatar Way of Water. Uh, it's it's literally like a chore to, to watch that movie or to get up the 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 gumption to go see that movie. But I really uh, like the original, but I saw Way of Water, and yeah, it's yeah too much too much of the same. I think yeah, but Titanic, uh, boy, does that still fly? Um, yeah. Anyway, we'll have to leave that there. Uh, yeah, Titanic was almost on my list too. Yeah, for the same reason, because he bet on himself, right? Like, absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, and he gets a bad rap because of like his his Oscar speech and sort of how he <laughs> comes across to people. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely trusts his instincts, and he's done a great job um, just doing what he seeing his vision and going forward with it. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's, an, um, that's a very good movie too. I think. I think it's sometimes maybe critically, like it, it it won the best picture and everything. But sometimes people are like, oh, it's kind of fluffed. But I think it's just a great, great movie. So good, good job on Jimmy Cameron, the Canadian, <laughs> Can, real Canadian success story. All right, <laughs> yeah. uh, we're gonna take a quick break and come right back with Bo is Afraid. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Baby, believe me, it's only a matter of time. You'll always be a part of me. I'm part of you indefinitely. Don't you know you can't escape me? Darling, cause you'll always be my baby. It will linger on. Time can't erase the feeling is strong No way you're never gonna shake me Darling, cause you'll always be my You and I will always be You and I You and I Am I dead? No, no, you've been healing so quickly And no organs were hit and your, your bleeding was really mild what this is a room is this is a room in our house but it's your home for as long as you need my name's grace oh this is roger this is my husband hey kai welcome back thought you'd sleep in huh roger's a very respected surgeon he's the one who dressed and treated your wounds you're a lucky man. What was this? That's my little assistant health monitor. Keeps track of your condition. Okay, that was a clip from Bo is Afraid. It is a new film from writer directy Ar- oh. And that sorry, I I I stepped on my tongue. All right, here we no go. No worries, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. That was a clip from Bo is Afraid. It's the new film from writer and director Ari Aster, and it stars Joaquin Phoenix, Patti Lapone, Amy Ryan, Nathan Lane, Kylie Rogers, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Richard Kind, and Parker Posey. Uh, as, as we said on the top, this is a Wikipedia description. Surrealist black tragic comedy horror. Um, so obviously meant to provoke some complicated feelings so tim how do you feel coming out of bo is afraid i don't really feel much coming out of bo is afraid (laughs) and i think the director ari aster wanted me to feel wanted people to feel something Mm -hmm. but i felt like he just threw so much at the screen that there wasn't to me a lot of depth to it it's mm. kind of like he's just painting little things, but there's no depth to it. It's just like here, there, I'm going to throw this all at the screen. I thought if it was more focused, um, I didn't like much of it at all, but mm. I would say the start, maybe where he's in the apartment in the crime ridden neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if the film focused on that for longer or even the duration, I think it could have been interesting and apparently his original short film, Bo, that's what it is. It's I haven't seen it, but I read a description where it's Bo is 
has to stay in his apartment because he thinks somebody's stolen his keys. He can't leave mm-hmm. his apartment mm-hmm. and he's in this crime ridden neighborhood. I thought that was somewhat compelling for a little bit. You know, definitely everyone's a caricature in this movie. Everyone's over the top, <laughs> which I think in that milieu where it's sort of like, okay, there's people gouging each other's eyes. out, and stuff, It kind of works. Right. But mm-hmm. then when you go and he ends up in the suburbs with the family and then there's like um, military veteran with PTSD and stuff. And it's, I just thought it was stupid. Mm-hmm. I, I thought so much of this was just dumb. And that's just my opinion. And I don't think, I don't think there's much there for me to go back to, to tell you the truth. There isn't like, okay, there's a, there's some deep meaning to this. I don't think there is. I think he's been influenced by other films. He's probably been influenced. You know, I think of like something like David Lynch, like Mulholland Drive. When I watched it the mm-hmm. first time, I was kind of like, okay, I don't really get that. It was kind of cool. I don't get it. And then I've watched it many times since, and you s- see something new every time. Mm-hmm. With this, I feel like, no, I don't think there is. And I think he wants there to be something. Like, at, like he has, you know, all these people probably work for Bo's mother mm-hmm. that Bo's encountered. So there's something like, is this like a Truman show or something? Are they, mm-hmm. it, you know, you get that, but you get other things where, okay, now there's this play within the film there and it's about being an orphan and there's, um, you know, th- there, there's a lot that could have been good in this about this Lee character. Who's, anxiety riddled Mm -hmm. he has a fear of everything fear of Mm -hmm. going outside he has a fear of sex he has a fear of his mother (laughs) um there's a lot that could have been done with this but i felt like there was no depth to it characters were all caricatures Mm -hmm. um i've even read some reviews where the the mother's performance is praised but to me even that's kind of one note she's just sort of like this I thought early the mother from his childhood that he remembers uh, sort of sympathetic, loving Mm -hmm. that was somewhat interesting, but then the character at the end where she's just like vicious, like, I think we've seen that before. Like that's like, so (laughs) it's just this evil woman. Like, and, and once again, Joaquin Phoenix, like I'm sure he'll get praised. And I thought he did, he did well in this once again, but it's like with Joker, I thought, which I hated as well. Um, he does well. He's a great actor. I think it's just, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's hard to like say anything wrong about what he's done. He's doing what's asked of him as sort of this passive anxiety riddled character with these sad eyes. And, you know, mm-hmm. you do, you feel a little bit for him, but I don't think there's enough that you feel that much. Cause it's just, the movie bounces around so much that it's hard to really, be invested mm-hmm. in him and if it had taken the time to slow down i think and focus on some aspect of it <laughs> i think it would have been a lot better in my opinion so i left kind of like wow but the the, the on a positive note uh-huh. I, I was never bored i think okay. maybe there's one section where i might have been slightly bored um like where they're in the forest and stuff uh and the orphans of the forest which is trying to be some big statement i think uh, but I wasn't, I watched it all. 
It had some interesting visuals. <gasps> it passed and... the first test. I didn't get up and leave halfway through. No, it wasn't. And and the funny thing is, like, it's <gasps> not it's not a it's not much of a horror either. Mm. I think he's trying to make it a comedy. And yeah, it is it funny. It, yeah, yeah. There was some stuff that was funny, but a lot of it, I was like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like that really fell flat. Mm-hmm. I thought a lot of the jokes. So. It's my opinion on that one. <laughs> so I don't uh, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you said, but I, on the other hand, I wildly disagree with everything you said. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, the perform, I mean, the performances are fine. Joaquin Phoenix is good. I, I just, I, I agree. This is self indulgent, like nobody's business. Um, and it, and there are times it seems like wildly unfocused. And I there are things that I don't necessarily get about this. Like, what time is it set in? Because I was thinking yeah. about that a lot. Because it seems like on the one, like there's some this mention of uh the the soldier with PTSD. He was a friend of the couple played by Amy Ryan and, and Nathan Lane, or friend of their son. And she's talking about how they were in Caracas together. And it's like, Venezuela? Has there been a war in Venezuela I don't know about? Yeah. Um, and then there's the whole... I don't be- think anything's supposed to make sense. That's the thing, right? And there's no, like, doesn't know, ground you in it, any sort of reality. The suggestion yeah. is that this is, like, the not-too-distant future. And the whole thing, the whole first part in the city at his apartment feels like it's, like, a Republican campaign ad. Like, this is what a second term of Joe Biden's going to look like, you know? This this yeah. this naked guy running through the streets stabbing people and, you know, having to run into your apartment because this guy covered in tattoos is trying to get you. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems kind of loopy like that. Um, but then I started, like, trying to take it out, trying to take the movie out in pieces, it and I, I saw somebody online refer to it as it's like Westworld for horror, and I was kind of building my way up to that, right? Because I had I was watching it, I, I did have feelings of Truman Show. It's like Truman Show, but a horror. It's like Forrest Gump, but a horror in that it's about a simpleton who like falls backwards into like these incredible situations. Except there's no like history component to it either. Um, it, you know, it's it's kind of like a, a darkly mythical kind of jewish version of everything everywhere all at once as well like it's kind of got that vibe to it um but when i stumbled upon somebody saying it's westworld for horror movies i I, I was like you know what that makes a lot of sense because he goes he's in this city and it's very like dawn of the dead where you know all these like homeless people and things are like essentially zombies um Mm -hmm. and then it, it moves out to the suburban area where he's been injured and and Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan are taking care of him and there's like a serious misery vibe to it <laughs> um, and then he finds his way into the forest and like all these like idyllic flower children theater troupe and it like here's now we're entering folk horror territory um i you so you know when you start taking it apart like that um it feels I don't know if it makes more sense, but it, it gives you, it gives yeah. you a way into the movie. <laughs> yeah, and I think like some reviewers have said, it was like a therapy session for him, and that's what yeah. it's like his mommy issues, and like uh, I agree with that, and like it might not even be that a lot of it doesn't 
a lot of it doesn't make literal sense, but then you can say, no. okay, he's thinking of the, this is all his fears, you know, come to life basically. Um, and how his relationship with his mother has, has sort of ruined him as an adult in a lot of ways. Right. There, there's um, a thesis here about sort of like, you, you don't go through life being timid. Don't run from mm-hmm. confrontation, even if with its own, if it, even with its your own mother. Like there are so many scenes where he's like, pres- and it, the 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 ending kind of nails it on the head, where he's like presented with a choice, and he knows what the thing he wants, but he can't say it out of fear of like saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if that is some statement on the part of Ari Aster. It's like, you know, just say what you want. What can, what's the worst that can happen? Your, your mother puts you on trial in front of a scorching rabble. I guess maybe, <laughs> but um, th- th- there is a lot of sort of that inner, inner melancholy of, of just like going through life afraid of the consequences of choices. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't know if he does anything with it, but I feel that like that's the kind of like the pointed inner commentary of the movie is just like um Bo is very much afraid of making a choice because he doesn't want to deal with if it's the wrong choice or if somebody thinks it's the wrong choice. Um it's it's it, there, there's there's something to that. I don't know what because Ariaster then decides to have a like a five minute animated play about you know people yeah. getting lost some some mythical Babylonian allegory with guys getting lost in floods. <laughs> yeah, I think he's sort of a slave to his influences a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I I thought oh, on the Criterion Channel there's an interview. Um, that he did about his influences mm. is called they have a segment called adventures in filmmaking and it was like a 20 minute interview he did with one of his friends who's a film critic and filmmaker in new york city and watching that i could kind of understand his perspective because it starts off he talks about like martin scorsese a lot he talks about stanley kubrick and you're kind of following his stream of thought and it's a conversation between mm. him and the in the interviewer it's a good conversation mm-hmm. then at one point i'm like was this edited no he's just going off he's just saying <laughs> oh and i like these japanese filmmakers and i like this and i like that and it's <laughs> it, it's like sort of like manic in, and it wasn't edited that way it's just him like going off in these different directions i feel like that's what he ends up doing in this film to the audience is he's sort mm-hmm. of like I like this. I like this. I like that. I want to show this, 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 this. I want to show everything I can here. Here you go. Mm. And that's, I, I think sometimes that works, but a lot of times if, if you don't have those constraints, mm-hmm. you're just, you're just throwing out all these ideas and, you know, there's always the next film, right? You can like talk about some of this in your next film. You don't have to like, throw it all out there and then i think it just dilutes so much of it dilutes the power of it for me um the fact that he's not spending the time on on something to build it um it's more like okay this is this grand odyssey i've created mm. and so then the scenes that are supposed to be powerful to me weren't that powerful like mm. where bo bo's emotional um 
Bo with his sons and stuff is like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, there, there's so much of it too that is not, uh, I, you know, there are twists that I feel aren't really twisty because I kind of saw them coming. Like, there's this whole thing with the therapist played by uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson, and there. This is kind of why I want to watch it again at some point because I I feel like watching that and it's kind of, it's like the very first scene it's like the first or second scene where he's in this therapy session. There's a moment where there's a turn and I started to look at the the therapist skeptically, where he comes in he seems like this very pleasant man. Stephen McKinley Henderson seems like a very pleasant man. I don't know him personally, but you know he seems he seems very nice and affable. But yeah. there's this like. It's it's either a change in the angle or a change in the lighting. It's something that's very very subtle, and I was like, "There's something about this guy, like what's what's going?" And then when he comes in later, given the context in which you see him later, it's like, "I knew it! I knew it! I knew this guy was bad news." I don't know why, but yeah. it's it, it it's 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 unusual that I just things that come across as twists in this i do not feel are very especially twisty and stuff that i think is supposed to answer questions like one of the things i don't get what like watching through this is like why is everyone so mean to this guy why is everyone why does everyone treat him like garbage (laughs) yeah yeah maybe there's a statement there though like if you're (laughs) if you have low self-esteem and you don't present yourself well in the world that you do get treated like garbage, I guess, right? So. Yeah, he has this conversation, and I love this casting. Um, having Richard Kind as as the family attorney, and he's so like he's so venomous and 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 angry, which is, you know, Richard Kind most of the time when you see him, he's he's playing like, you know, clowns. He's playing like buffoons. So to have him like play vicious is really interesting. But he Bo has this conversation with. The Richard Kind character, and he's like, "You're being so selfish. We just want to bury your mother. She want she, and it was her thing that you had to be here. Why are you being so selfish? Like, pick yourself up, loser, <laughs> and get down here to so we can bury your mother." And you know, yeah. it's like he's like explaining to you how he's like in an accident. He was hit by a car. His stuff yeah. was stolen. It- <laughs> yeah, yeah, but maybe they don't believe it because it is kind of unbelievable too, right? So I know that's of- the, that's the thing. That's it's it's so intriguing not intriguing but it, it is this sort of like fascinating like to what degree do you do our perceptions of the people around us sort of inform new information because he yeah. he he leaves his luggage and his keys in the doorway he runs back into his apartment to grab them he comes back the keys are gone the luggage is gone and so he's like well i can't leave my apartment without my keys and can't get the landlord on the phone and he calls his mother and he's like look i, I have this situation uh, what can I do with his mother's like oh, okay if you didn't want to come just say so yeah. and because she's yeah. already had it baked in her head he's a terrible son yeah Even though, well, like, oh for sure yeah yeah and I think that that doesn't form like if you and then like how much of this is actually happening and yeah yeah so yeah maybe he's Who just took the luggage though that's the thing that's that's one of the other day like was taking the luggage and the keys part of the plan to to f with this guy because right yeah, after that, that guy yeah. yeah yeah right after that he comes out and he sees his neighbor and he says hey did you see my luggage and the neighbor goes starts laughing at him and goes you are so effed except he doesn't <laughs> say f and, yeah. and, and it's like yeah how many people were in on this 
Yeah, because then it's it it might, it might. I almost would respect it more if it was just like in his mind and all this. But mm-hmm. then at the end, when he looks at the wall and he sees like Nathan Lane's a worker for the company, mm-hmm. then it strikes me like okay, he's trying to wrap this up in a bow like this has mm-hmm. all been staged mm-hmm. or you know he's like bow's been part of an experiment his whole life basically right mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. has been done before somewhat interesting concept but like i almost if it was just like his paranoid fantasies mm-hmm. i would almost respect it more than trying to like tie yeah, it, it was, up or it trying kafka ask yeah yeah or trying to say okay so viewers you can watch this a second time and you'll see that the uh, psychiatrist was actually a bad person. Like it's, I don't know. Like, does that to me, does that amount to anything really other than, but again, that's why I kind of want to look at it again. It, I'm, we, we talked about this before, but like the, his previous two movies are asked are like hereditary. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. I, I saw it <laughs> once. I'm good. Midsummer. <laughs> it's like Florence Pugh is great. Yeah. You know, rape a guy sold him into a bear suit set him on fire awesome we get it swirl alert for midsummer um but <laughs> you know this actually has something that makes me want to look at it again it, it's actually like daring me to look at it again which i find interesting mm-hmm. um and, and again something ari oster has not done which i i feel like he's practically daring i think he's like daring you to come to his movies in the first place because there's this thing where um you know, he he invited like families to come in to the theater to see a family movie, and it turns out to be Midsummer. And it's you know, it it feels like look how sick and twisted I am. Don't you want to run away from the theater? Yeah. Um. And and it's interesting it, it, in his interview with Criterion, he said, <laughs> I think it's from a couple years ago. He says, mm-hmm. so it's before Bo was afraid. I don't know before they filmed it or before his released at least. Mm-hmm. He's saying, um he only did was doing the horror genre. Uh, it was sort of cynical because mm-hmm. he just wanted to get movies produced, mm-hmm. get his name out there. And it wasn't re- truly what he wanted. He wanted to do, he wanted to do something different, um, more like personal and uh, uh, artistic, I think. So that's what he's, I think trying to get to with Bo is afraid. Um, it's, but I think so- sometimes those constraints can help though. It's what I'm saying. Like sometimes you need, you need yeah. some walls around stuff or else it's just I mean, I think it's mess. definitely personal, but I also think that he's showing off a lot. And I think he's like, you know, look, look, look how bendy and twisty and, you know, messed up I can get. It's like, you're, you're still here. We're two hours in and I just finished my elongated, like metaphorical animated dream sequence. <laughs> you st- you still here? <laughs> It's. <laughs> Do you like this? <laughs> you know, there's a, near the end, like Bo gets into a boat and starts sailing out into the lake, and you think, okay, we're nearing the end, and it's like, no, we're not at the end. I still have to punish Bo some more. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's there. There is kind of this wild, like he's he's poking a stick at the audience aspect to it that I kind of enjoy. Um, but yeah. I I, th- I I think the mileage. I mean, look at the end of the day. We've talked to Blue Streak about this movie, and um, it's it's interesting. I don't think I don't think you can't say it's not. It may not work for you, but you, I don't think you can say it's not interesting. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I I I agree. Like the more you read into it, and mm-hmm. that's 
That's something that can be a device, you know, like yeah, I'm yeah. going to get people to read into stuff. I'm going to do something. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And some people will read into it and that's right. That's, that's fine. And maybe there could be stuff and maybe I'll eat my words five years from now. I've done that with yeah. other movies before. Sure. Um, but I'm just saying watching it, I didn't think much afterward. And for me, like, great films when i see them in a theater i leave and i'm thinking about stuff and i must admit despite all these elements to it that you think would resonate and you think about after mm. i didn't really think about it afterwards i was like mm. kind of on to the next thing because i was like yeah he sort of to me it all almost boiled down to these are like the mommy issues yeah he's getting getting stuff out there about you know what he almost feels in his psyche or what he can imagine a character like Bo who's passive would feel somebody who's anxiety riddled in today or I don't know, near future, what have you and mm-hmm. how your, your mother and your parents can shape who you become mm-hmm. here, here you, here you go. Mm-hmm. But it just didn't resonate. Cause I didn't feel like true empathy for any of the characters Mm. They're all kind of caricatures, which can be fine if it's like mm. a satire. But this just seemed to me like, like here's a bunch of ideas mm. that to me didn't really go go anywhere, or where they went even at the end didn't didn't appeal to me because it's sort of it's almost like he's trying to tie things up. I think, and it, maybe mm. when we watch when you watch it, I don't know if I <laughs> a second time, maybe you'll see, okay, this all tied together. This was all an experiment at birth, blah, blah, blah. But mm. it didn't, it didn't afterwards. I didn't really like, I'm thinking more of it now that we're talking about it than I did any time after seeing it, unfortunately. Well, but, if, if nothing else, you know, take away the eternal lesson. Don't look in the attic. Um, <laughs> That seems, uh, I think we could all agree about that, but uh, that's a spoiler, and we've done enough spoiling for today. Uh, that is it for our show. We hope you liked it. You can listen to it again by finding it on our website, endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the show. Just search for End Credits on CFRU in spotify and you can also find us on social media we're on facebook at end credits radio show and we're on twitter at end credits radio and tim where else can people find you out there on the internet on the internet flashing the deadpan on social media and yeah reach out and uh let me know if i totally missed a point of this movie (laughs) (laughs) all right you you've been you've been dared you've been dared (laughs) <laughs> I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5pm for News and Politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz in the meantime I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson and you can find Guelph Politico my News and Politics site at guelphpolitico.ca you can stay tuned for more great programming too here on CFRU 93.3 FM CFRU.ca Guelph Campus and Community Radio and we shall return next Wednesday at 3pm for another edition of End Credits and we will see you then